you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 24. I don't have any kind of anything today, Holden, because I'm living wild and free, so that's perfect. Um, I just, oh, yeah, so the kids are staying here today. Plot twist. So kids are going to be in the room. Sorry about that, anyone who finds that disconcerting, but that's how it's going to be, and you just need to deal with it. That's what it is. Um, I, I, thanks Randy for leading us in announcements that were back and forth and, uh, funny just to reiterate about next weekend. Um, so if you don't know, we are in a building called the Otterbein United Methodist Church. And so there is a community that worships here between 9:30 and 10:30 every Sunday morning. And then we come in and we're trying to explore some ways that we can be, um, less strangers, like living in the same building and more like spiritual family. So next week doing Christmas decorations together and then putting together a joint choir for something on December 8th is the way that we're doing that. And so thanks Randy for that. If you want to sing or decorate for Christmas, we're going to eat. It'll just be fine. Did you know in some churches when we do Christmas decorations, do you know they call it the hanging of the greens, which always makes me feel bad for the greens. You know, what did they do? Um, isn't that joke like right there? But if you get into certain church circles, they're like, oh yeah, the hanging of the greens. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like we're killing people, um, is what that sounds like. Um, be praying for Randy and Jairus and young Dan and Holden and Zach Byler. Uh, this afternoon, they're going to be delivering the sermons they've been working on in preaching cohort. And I'm excited for them to experience that. Um, we're going to do a round two of preaching cohort in the spring. So if you would like to grow in your preaching and teaching of the Bible or just know how to study it better, that'll be, we'll announce that. Um, the five that aren't preaching because uh, they're scaredy cats, no, I'm just kidding, life interrupted. Uh, Jenna Frisk, Lindsay Goosens, uh, Mike Frisk, I'm missing two people, uh, looking around the table, looking, Holden, no, he's preaching. Oh, Steph. And Lindsay, and one other person who obviously is very important to us too, uh, won't be, but they'll be doing it on the 8th. So, um, what's that? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody here. Kayla. Kayla, Kayla number 10. Cool beans. Uh, so, good thing I don't have to communicate for a living. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 2 today. Please be praying for me while I preach. Um, I, I had a migraine on Friday and a migraine on Saturday, and I can't tell if one is coming now. I've kind of tried to stay out ahead of it with some meds. Um, and it honestly just starts to feel like spiritual attack a little bit because we've had some breakthrough in prayer in our lives over like the last week. So, uh, but we're going to be in 1 Timothy 2. So I talked about honor when I talked about free honor. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, here we go. Uh, it made Paul's heart grow cold when he heard the news from those he loved in Ephesus. The church was in trouble. False teachers were leading the members of the church astray into false teaching based on dark magic and astrology rooted in the practices of the nearby temple of Artemis. And it seemed to Paul that most often the news he got was very, very bad. False teachers here, heresy over there. And all the while, the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom is trying to break through the churches, the places where that should be happening. They can't seem to get out of their own way. They can't seem to stop shooting themselves in the foot. But, but this time, 
this church, Ephesus, this time it was, it was personal. Paul hadn't risked his life in a riot of silversmiths, only to go back to lead and plant that church. Only then to have them fail to heed his warning. He told them in his tearful goodbye, Paul told them that there would be wolves that would arise within the flock at the church of Ephesus. He told them that there would be men speaking twisted things to draw the people away from the truth, away from Jesus. Paul was angry, of course, but he was angry because he was sad. Alexander and Hymenaeus, two leaders in the church in Ephesus, had been deceived by this false teaching. They were leading the charge of false teaching. Paul had to cast them from the church. The believers in Ephesus were so divided that when the men ran into each other in the marketplace, it came down to fisticuffs. I kind of just wanted to say the word fisticuffs. Young widows, many of them having great means, now spent their days going from house church to house church, looking for a man to take to bed, looking for a man to overpower and lead into deceit. And there, in the middle of it all, is Paul's son in the faith, Timothy. His Timothy, the only one that he could trust to be his representative to this church. Paul didn't know that when he sent Timothy to Ephesus, he was sending him to war. And Timothy was a good soldier. Timothy knows how to fight the good fight of faith. But Paul couldn't help but ask himself, what kind of father sends their son to war? All these thoughts swirling around his mind, Paul takes a piece of paper and a quill and he began to write. And sometimes, sometimes the words just flowed out of him. Sometimes it felt like the words were on fire and this was one of those times. And as Paul, Paul's quill scribbled across the page rapidly, this is what he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2 starting in verse 8. In every place I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted of God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do, not a per, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan, but the woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Today we come to one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, a passage that has stumped interpreters and theologians. In my home office and in my office at the church, I have a stack of books this big to work through this text. It's a passage that, like last week, has been used as a reason to silence women. By the way, Pam was here last week, if you missed it, she dealt with like interpreting and applying one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, made it look like it was no big deal. I was so mad. 
Uh, Just this week, a well-known pastor on the national stage, or just last Sunday, he preached this text, and in his sermon, he said, empowering women makes men weak. If empowering women makes men weak, I am glad to be the weakling. If empowering women makes men weak, I am glad to be the weakling. There are times, there are times when we come to the Bible, and we read it, and we get it. I mean, the meaning is just right there, hanging out on the surface. When I read passages that say, love one another, when I read passages that say, don't grumble or complain about anything, I don't really need to do a lot of research into that, do I? I don't need to figure out the historical context of why Paul would say, love one another. I I don't need to understand what the Greek word for grumble and complain is. I just need to have, it's it's not an issue of like knowing, It's it's a Nike issue, it's a just do it issue, right? Don't grumble and complain. It's right there. But sometimes we come to passages of Scripture. Sometimes we come to little nuggets throughout the Old and New Testament that just leave you stumped. That before we can even begin to think about doing it, we have to figure out what the heck is going on here. What the heck is Paul trying to say? What the heck is someone else in in Scripture trying to say? What is God, most importantly, trying to get us to understand about this? And sometimes we come to these difficult passages and we have to pay close attention. We have to be like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes who grabs every little shred of evidence and data who says we can't just see, we have to observe. How many chairs are in this room? I mean, a lot of you are here every week. How many chairs are in this room? How many doors are in that hallway? I mean, you're here every week. How many shelves are on the shelf behind you without looking? See, we see these chairs, we see the doors, but we don't observe. We don't pay attention. That's what we have to do when we come to a difficult passage, especially this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We have to grab our our Sherlock Holmes hat. I realized this morning it would have been cool to order one on Amazon and like wear it. I would have been able to smoke a pipe while preaching. That would be cool. No smoking. Shoot, we'd have to go outside. Um, And sometimes we have to grab the evidence, evidence from the literary context, looking at the words on the page and what kind of genre we're dealing with, and also the historical context. Historical context, what was happening in the church in Ephesus in this moment, in their culture, what was happening in Paul's life. A lot of that you can derive from reading the text and what you can't. We have incredible insights from archaeology and Bible backgrounds. But here's the key. When we read 1 Timothy, we are reading someone else's mail. When we read 1 Timothy, we are reading someone else's mail. And it's not just anybody's mail. We're reading mail between a guy, between two men who consider each other father and son. There's so much in 1 Timothy that Paul is so brief and just skips right over because he knows that Timothy knows what he's talking about. And yet in this letter that is occasioned by specific circumstances, we find clues to what was going on in the church of Ephesus, why Paul wrote this letter to have Timothy read it out loud, to shore up Timothy's authority in this church, to bring order to the chaos of the life of the church. See, what's going on in this church is that false teaching has corrupted it. 
And Paul predicted this in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said, men are going to arise within you and they're going to lead you astray. Women have been especially caught up in this false teaching. And now they're going from house church to house church, looking for a man that they can overpower sexually, that they can overpower doctrinally. Dark magic and astrology from the temple of Artemis is corrupting the worship of Jesus. So Paul, knowing all of these things going on in this church, writes a letter to one of his best friends, his mentee, his son in the faith, to correct this. And so what I want us to do is look at this this really just confusing passage. I mean, did you hear it say, women, your salvation comes through bearing children? That was a big problem for us when we were walking through infertility. We're going to look at this very confusing passage. We're going to look at it line by line, and I think we will see if we can make the mud less muddy, okay? So let's start in chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Let's just start here. If, if you are a man who believes the Bible clearly teaches that women shouldn't be preaching, when I close in prayer, I want to make sure your hands are up. Okay? When we worship, I want to make sure your hands are up. Because the Bible clearly says that women can't teach. Well, it also says that your hands need to be up in the air. So here's what's going on. The church in Ephesus has been so overtaken so divided by false teaching that these men in the church can't get together anywhere without it coming to blows. Uh, The NLT renders this verse and says, in every place of worship. That's unwarranted. The Greek just says, in every place. So the men are running into each other at the market. The, The wives are getting everybody for dinner and the guys are there and they start talking and pretty soon they're rolling up their sleeves and it's getting angrier and angrier and then somebody punches somebody out because it just gets that intense. Now, I can't imagine a social gathering go that intensely, but that's because I don't have a crazy uncle who likes to bring up politics at Thanksgiving dinner. You know what I'm saying? I I can't imagine spiritual conversation getting that intense until I remember that a good friend of mine in church leadership here in the Valley, when, when when he made a decision that somebody didn't like, they whipped their keys at his head. I'm sure they did it with the love of Jesus. But they whipped their keys. I mean, it got violent, right? I I had somebody once say to me, oh, we'll know we're really getting into business when we start, like, throwing things at each other. I was like, really? But that's what's happening in this church. The men see each other. They start getting angry. They start disputing. They start fighting. Paul preserves the strongest words he has for women, but that's because he's nailed down the man problem in chapter 1, verse 20, by kicking Hymenaeus and Alexander out. He says, I've literally handed them over to Satan. Could you imagine if there was some sin in your life and I was like, you need to leave and I'm going to hand you over to Satan. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, right? He deals with it in here in chapter 2 he says, I want your hands raised. And then he starts to address the women in verse 9. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Okay, and if you're like one of the evangelicals in our church that's like, purity culture is so dumb and I want to roll my eyes about modesty, just stick with it and listen to it, Okay. I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds, adorning themselves with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. He says, well, you profess to worship God. Let's make sure your life matches up to that. See, Paul turns his attention to the women 
But these are particular women who have particularly been drawn into false teaching of the Artemis cult. Paul does not have every woman everywhere in mind because he's talking about specific women here. He's talking about women who adorn themselves with elaborate hairstyles, with gold, with pearls, expensive clothes. So what we're going to do is on your way out today, there'll be a bucket. Please drop all your jewelry in there. There's under your seat, there's makeup wipes, ladies, please, thank you. No, he's talking about women who wear gold and pearls and elaborate hairstyles. He uses a specific word, expensive clothes. He's talking about women who dress like prostitutes. He's talking about women who dress like courtesans. And he addresses these widows very specifically, these women in chapter 5. If you flip over to 1 Timothy 5, start in verse like 11. Earlier, he's called out some of these women for kind of being, you know, a little sexually aggressive. And then in verse 11, he says, the younger widows should not be on the list. He's kind of talking about how do we care for widows in the church. The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to marry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. If they're on the list, they will learn to be lazy They will spend their time gossiping from house to house, literally from house church to house church, meddling in other people's business, talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, to have children, to take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them, for I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. See, Paul says these rich widows... They dress like prostitutes, they dress like courtesans, and they're idle. They have nothing better to do than to go from house church to house church. The church in Ephesus doesn't have a gathered and a scattered at this point. It just has a scattered. So they're going from house church to house church. Imagine in our context, circle to circle to circle. Going from circle to circle. And what they're doing is they're saying things they ought not to. They're looking for a man. They're getting handsy. They talk nonsense, they're busybodies, but one commentator notes that these words in Greek, nonsense and busybodies, house to house, all of these are sidelong glances at the Artemis cult and the practice of astrology. All of these Greek words find their way into the teachings of the astrology of the temple of Artemis. They're not just going around and saying, did you see that so-and-so did such-and-such a thing? That's not the kind of busybody they are. See, what they're doing is they're stirring up false teaching. They're stirring up false teaching in the community. These women are trying to overpower men and draw them into false teaching. They're trying to draw them into lies that undermine the gospel. And it is important as we move into verses 11 and 12 that we have in mind that Paul is specifically addressing these specific women. Not any woman anywhere for any reason, but these very wealthy, very... um, Actually, the the Greek word literally means (laughs) man-hungry. These man-hungry women. And so of these women, Paul says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. See, here's the, the difficult passage, but when we keep the context in mind, it starts to, the meaning starts to rise to the surface a little faster because the women are going from house church to house church. They're looking for sex. They're looking for, they're spreading false teaching. 
And Paul says, instead of doing these things, it would be better for them if they sat down and quietly listened to what was being taught in the gatherings. Instead of trying to assume leadership, instead of trying to take control, and instead of trying to careen the church into false teaching and ultimately destruction. See, Paul says something radical here. He's throwing the women a bone. He's throwing them grace. He's throwing them invitation. Because what he says is, listen, I kicked these men out because they were that wrong. But you guys, you women, I want to give you another chance. Would you learn in the assembly? Would you do so quietly? He says quietly twice, which is an echo of chapter 2, verse 2. He says we should be praying for governors and authorities that we may live a quiet life. Quietness is good for men and women, but it's especially good for this particular group of women who, this particular group of women, who when the church gathers, when they bump into two women having coffee, talking about discipleship stuff, they say, wait a minute, I want to say something here. When it comes time for a teaching or a prophecy and someone stands up, they interrupt them and say, wait a minute, I want to add to that this thing about the house of Saturn that you don't know. I want to add to that this thing about angels that you don't know. I want to add to it this piece. And Paul says, you know, it would be really good. Why don't you continue to learn? Stay in the gathering, but do so quietly. Do so in full submission. Instead of opening your mouth and spewing lies, could you just please just take a minute, in this one case, you ladies, and listen in. Listen in. And because these women are so deceived... Of course, says, I do not permit a woman such as this. That's the force of I do not permit. I do not permit a woman such as this to teach, two verbs here, to teach or assume authority. Now, what's interesting is to teach, Paul uses the same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and in Romans 12, 7, to talk about the gifts of teaching. And in those passages, he does not limit them to only men. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, he opens those gifts to women. But here in 1 Timothy 2, he says women aren't allowed to do this. It must mean that given that Scripture is so open to women teaching, that Paul is limiting it here in 1 Timothy 2, points to us that there is something very special going on here. And that's only further highlighted when Paul uses the verb authentane to assume authority over because Paul uses, get ready for a fancy term you didn't know before you came today, he uses a hopox legomenon. That is not that song that we grew up with, like Legomenon. Do, 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 da, 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 da. No. Hopox Legomenon is when there's one, a word in the Greek New Testament that is only used once. When we get to heaven, we can smack Paul around for this a little bit, that he made it that hard. But if Paul wanted to limit women from having spiritual authority in all times and all places, he probably would have used the word exousia which is the Greek word for authority elsewhere. All exousia in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples. But Paul uses the specific word, this word, authentane. And it's a word he borrows from Eastern mystery religions, from the Temple of Artemis. It's a word that means overpower. That the house of Saturn has overpowered, authentaned the house of Mars. What Paul is doing is limiting this group of women from assuming spiritual authority in the community because they are spiritually disqualified from doing so. But what's problematic for Kyle, as he's chasing down this line of questioning, is that Paul very specifically says, I do not permit a woman like this to assume authority over or to instruct a man. 
I mean, bad teaching is bad for everybody. Whether you're a man or a woman, a, an adult or a child, bad teaching is bad teaching for everyone. So why does Paul say, I am particular, don't want women like this with their lies and deceit overpowering a man? Well, Paul explains his reasoning for that in verses 13 through 15. And by explain, I mean makes it harder to understand. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, If they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. See, Paul makes this point. He appeals to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. The story of creation, God makes Adam and Eve. Eve eats of the forbidden fruit, shares that with her husband. All of things are plunged in. And when verse 13 says, for Adam was born first, then Eve, some commentators look at that and say, see, this is why Paul is saying only men teach. Because men were created first, that creates a hierarchy. Women were deceived, therefore women must be more easily deceived. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, says the only time a woman was allowed to teach, the whole world was ruined, so let's not let women teach anymore, is what he looks at in this verse. Um, some of you I know like are teachers, so if you could, uh, let's, we'll meet after church today, we'll start writing your letters of resignation. That'd be good. Okay, <laughs> okay rough week for Danielle, all right. Um, go to my boss, listen, the Bible says I can't teach, so I gotta get out of here. Uh, the story that Paul is telling here, he, he's not creating like a this is because and there's a hierarchy. Remember, hierarchy between men and women is a result of the fall. It's not a pre-fall condition, it's a result of the fall. Instead, what Paul is doing is summarizing the story to Timothy in the same way that I would summarize Star Wars Episode Four as like, you know, Luke and da-da-da-da-da and then the torpedo and, and everybody in the room knows what I'm talking about. Unless you've not watched Star Wars, you heathen. Uh, then you don't know. And so Paul is doing that kind of abbreviated summarizing. And here's what Paul is getting at. He says what Paul, what Paul says, Timothy, this is not just any kind of run-of-the-mill heresy that I'm writing about in 1 Corinthians or in Galatians or Colossians. No, there is something particularly sinister about this, Timothy, because what is happening is your church, they're reenacting the fall. They're reenacting our worst moment as humanity. Andrew Bartlett says this, before the woman was formed, Adam lived in obedience to God and he continued doing so until the woman, having been deceived by Satan's promise of knowledge, transgressed. The nature of her transgression was not only taking the forbidden fruit, the fruit of forbidden knowledge herself, her transgression was not only taking the fruit of forbidden knowledge herself, but also causing Adam to participate along with her. Paul doesn't want this scenario repeated in the Ephesian church. The wealthy women are actively sampling and passing on the forbidden fruit of teachings which falsely promise knowledge. Paul doesn't want these women to be instruments of Satan, causing any man, particularly the men who are in their sights as potential partners, to participate with them. See, in Genesis, Eve eats of a tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, and she turns and hands that to her husband. And in in Paul's mind, Adam's failure is a failure of will as Eve overpowers him and drags him into falsehood. 
and all of creation is plunged into it. And Paul says this is the very thing that's happening again as these women go to the temple of Artemis and learn these black magic practices and go to these men and winky, winky, offer them that kind of teaching too and are dragging down the whole community. It's the fall all over again. These women, scantily clad, rude, going from house church to house church, they're dragging all of Ephesus back into the fall. But interestingly, Paul ends this passage on a note of redemption by saying, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, so listen, obviously Paul can't mean, Paul can't mean that women experience salvation through bearing children because what about women who don't bear children? Obviously, what Paul can't mean is that every Christian woman everywhere will not die during childbirth because all sorts of Christian women throughout history have died during childbirth. See, what Paul is doing as he's telling the story of Genesis is he's echoing Genesis 3.15. He's echoing Genesis 3.15, which says this, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, snake. Her offspring will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So this is about Satan. This is about sin and death. This is about Jesus, whose heel is struck. And Satan thinks that they've won. But actually, when Jesus rises again, he crushes the head of the serpent, right? That's Genesis. And this is what Paul is saying. He's not saying through any kind of childbearing will you be fine. There's a hidden definite article. Does anybody know what a definite article is? It's the word the. What Paul actually says is women will be saved through the childbirth. A lot of uh, my New Testament even has kind of a little footnote that says that. It's one of the translations. Women will be saved through the childbirth because of Christmas. Listen, you've got all of these women and they're wantonly going from house church to house church and they're looking for a man to bed and they're trying to overpower the community. They're trying to take over. They're trying to run the show. They're trying to bring the false teachings of the temple of Artemis into the people of Jesus. But Paul says they're not beyond hope because the childbirth promises grace and redemption for all of them. And so if they continue, if they drop the act, and if they continue in love and holiness and faith with propriety, in other words, can we put a cardigan on, please? Paul says, there's hope for these women. Unlike Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he cast out from the fellowship, he's saying these women can still play a role here if they shape up, or sh- if, they shape up if they drop the false teachings, if they really listen, if they absorb the truth of what is said. See, here's what Paul is saying. Imagine I just put up a picture of a cute puppy on the screen to give us all a breath, okay? Cute puppy. Ah, okay. Here's what Paul's argument is. Paul's argument in 1 Timothy 2 is that false teaching threatens to overtake the church in Ephesus. And it's false teaching that has men in fisticuffs. I love that word. And it is women, especially these rich, young, single women, They are adopting these dark satanic practices of astrology and they are man-hungry and they're looking for a man to overpower with their bodies and their false teaching. And so Paul forbids these women, these women in particular, from teaching in the Ephesian church because they are spiritually disqualified from leading and teaching. 
far from prohibiting women from, in all times and all places from teaching, what Paul does is say, I want these women to be discipled. I want them to be familiar with truth so that when they do lead, they're leading us in the right direction, not in a bad one. Let me lead us in a thought experiment. So imagine if uh, next Sunday some women that are well-known in our spiritual family walk into our Sunday gathering, and we don't really say anything then, but I'm driving home with Steph, and I go, did you notice how so-and-so and so-and-so were dressed today? That's really out of character for them. It's not in their character to kind of dress skanky. what it is. And uh, imagine circles were still meeting. And uh, our circle leaders, our small group leaders kind of report back to me and stuff what's going on. And uh, all of the circle leaders are like, yeah, so-and-so and so-and-so. The t- bilers on Tuesday night are like, yeah, so-and-so and so-and-so. They were there on Tuesday night. And Wednesday night, Brits and the Coopers are like, hey, oh, so-and-so and so They were there on Wednesday night. And th- they came Thursday night too. And they, yeah, they they, they, were, they were dressed a little weird, and, and during that Bible time, they kept trying to kind of take the conversation to be about astrology and horoscopes, about this book that um, just didn't make us feel right. It, it felt a little dark. It was, it was a little weird, and as time goes on, they're like, yeah, and um, Kyle, like, we just found out that um, a guy in our community who's married has been texting late into the night with these women um, and there seems to be some sort of emotional, almost sexual thing happening between them. And there's pictures going back and forth on Snapchat. And um, can you imagine, I mean, that, that is not entirely out of the realm of our possibility. That there would be these people in our community that would be dragged away into worldliness and to kind of some dark magic-y, weird occult stuff, right? And talking about some books that make us feel uncomfortable. I mean, this actually happened... I didn't even think about this till just now. This happened to our guys' Bible study when we were meeting. It happened at Nick Santucci's. I'm trying, Zach was there. I don't know if Jairus was there. I remember not enough spiritually mature people were there. But do you remember this? That guy came. It was the weirdest thing I've ever experienced because he kept talking about this book that after researching it, um, real, as a man thinketh is what it was called, is, it's connected to the occult. And he kept dragging the conversation into this weird place and actually said um, he was trying to articulate that he could have revelation from God and didn't need the Bible and that he could come and just give us a word from the Lord and that we could study that and it would be authoritative in our life. I woke up the next day feeling, I'm not kidding, I felt so gross because that little Bible study that we had came under direct dark spiritual attack. Which is why, by the way, my point is, it's not, thank you, Lord, for reminding me of that weird memory that's actually happened in our community, uh, because it's not a man or woman thing. It's a right-wrong thing. That's what Paul's writing to Timothy about. It's not a man-woman thing. It's a right-wrong thing. Listen, a a couple of guys in our community could just as easily go circle to circle trying to get women into their bed, trying to kind of deceive them, planting seeds of, like, division in marriage, Right? And could you imagine then what would happen if one of them came to preaching cohort and said, I would like to learn how to teach our whole community? Heck no, tech no, right? Right? 
See, what Paul is getting at, that's so crazy that something like this has actually happened in our community. I totally forgot about that. Okay. This is why Jesus, this is Paul echoing this teaching in Matthew chapter 18 of Jesus, where Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. Tell you what, where's the worship song about that one, right? Okay? And it's like, better than what, Jesus? Well, better than an honest and direct conversation with me, Jesus says. See, what Paul's teaching about here is only permitting the spiritually qualified to teach and lead in our kingdom movement. We need leaders of character and competency, which is why Timothy chapter 3 is all about spiritual qualifications for leaders in a language, by the way, that transcends gender. Even though he's using the word he, it's not specifically he. It's just in the same way that we write about man and talk about humanity in general. Here's where this hits the road. Hear me out. There are men in our spiritual community, in our spiritual family right now, that if I gave you the ability to teach, you would lead us into false teaching and chaos and disarray far faster than many women in our community. This is a sermon not about women being quiet, but about men growing up. This is not a sermon about women being quiet, but about men growing up. And if we do feel silenced. If, if, you do, if you are someone that feels silenced, don't self-silence. I thought that Pam had a great application. That don't self-silence. If you're a leader of character and competency, don't self-silence. Don't hold back to let other people do it. Because let me tell you what, whether it's in this church or in any other, bad leaders will always fill a vacuum left by good leaders. Bad leaders will always fill a vacuum left by good leaders. We need leaders who are spiritually qualified, spiritually mature, of character and competency. Not just, oh, they're really good at that. They'll be fine, but have the character to back it up. See how Jesus looks for leaders. It's so interesting. Jesus doesn't look for skill. Uh, Jesus looks for character or at least a trajectory of character. So when he calls his disciples to him, his disciples don't know how to lead churches. His disciples don't know how to make other disciples. But he, he does find some guys that seem to have pretty good hearts that are pretty good fishermen and says, I'll pick you. He goes with people with, no, with very little skill and a trajectory of character. We want leaders of character and competency also that we are ready and we need men and women together so that the pump is prime for revival and renewal and that is the core of what this series is about is what i have figured out i felt like the lord said to me last week this is preparing for renewal and revival i really sense that regen is the tip of the iceberg or the first fruit of the renewal and revival that wants to come into our region Listen to anybody with kind of a prophetic or apostolic gift, and they're all saying revival and renewal is coming. But what's so interesting, and Pam even said this last week, women are, always play a key role in that. And so what we want to do as a church is clear the way so that women are set free to run. We want to prime the pump. And I keep getting an image of like an old-fashioned water pump. Like when was the last time I saw one of those? But I'm pretty sure to get the water to come out of that, you have to keep pumping that's what this series is doing. It's pumping the pump, right, so that the water gets ready to come out. That's what we're doing in this series. And let me just tell you one story. Randy will lead response time. We'll be out by about 1240. It'll be good. Okay. So in 1761, a woman named Sarah Crosby was shocked 
when instead of her usual 30, 200 people came to her Wesleyan class meeting. Sarah Crosby was a Methodist way back under John Wesley when Methodist didn't mean like old white people and it meant like movement of revival sweeping across Europe. Cool, I like that Methodism. Could take or leave the institutional stuff. So, saying that for the benefit of my colleagues who are listening online. 1761, Sarah Crosby, who's used to 30 people coming to her class meeting, and a class meeting was kind of similar to a circle, right? Some like leading of discussion around scripture and praying together. Well, imagine if 200 people came to your circle, right? Imagine if 200 people showed up uh, at the at the Byler Banning Circle or at the Brick Cooper Circle, 200 people, not 30, 200 people. Well, you can't really lead a discussion, right, with 200 people. So Sarah Crosby gets up, and all these people are here, about, here to hear about Jesus. So she gets up and tells them about Jesus. And she gets down and she writes a letter to John Wesley. And the letter says, um, hey, sorry, I think I might have preached. And, and and at that point, women weren't allowed to preach in the Methodist movement. So she's like, it's really cute. The letter's really cute. It's like, I'm really sorry I didn't mean to, but I didn't know what else to do. And John writes her a letter back, and he says, I don't know what else you could have done. You had 200 people who wanted to hear about Jesus. So he said, next time that happens, I want you to get up, and I want you to tell them, I don't intend to presume, but I simply want to plainly tell you what's in my heart. Well, this was kind of a shift in John Wesley's thinking so that 10 years later, he gives Sarah Crosby a license to preach, along with about 40 other women. And by the end of her life, Sarah Crosby rode 920 miles on horseback, wrote nearly 150 letters of pastoral concern, preached at like 600 class meetings, all of this kind of crazy stuff. And when women were put into leadership of the Methodist movement, of the Wesleyan movement, it skyrocketed. And then John Wesley dies, and all of the men around him, within a year, revoke all of the licenses given to women. And suddenly what you see happen is the trajectory of the Methodist movement begin to fall. And it's because it moved from movement to institution. Right? There are Sarah Crosbys in our midst. There are Sarah Crosby's in our midst. And if, they're not in our, if, and if they're not in our midst, they're in our building, right? They're these little girls that we want to raise. And Sarah Crosby started preaching for this reason. She had a vision where Jesus came to her and he said three words, feed my sheep. Man or woman, boy or girl, all I want you to hear this morning is that we need your voice. We need your voice to be the people that Jesus is calling us to. We need your voice. Let me pray and Randy will take it. Jesus, thank you that you push us and challenge us and surprise us and shake us up. I pray for the men and women listening who have something to say but who are silencing themselves, that, Lord, you would open their mouths and that we might hear your word come from them. In Jesus' name.